So we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. This is really one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And it really is a story about how sometimes, sometimes the truth that you're told doesn't seem to jive with what you feel. Yeah? Sometimes the truth that you're told doesn't jive with the way you feel. I remember uh, I went to Berkeley College of Music in the 1980s. Now, don't be impressed by that, because in the 1980s, it didn't cost very much money, and you didn't actually have to audition to get in. All you needed to go to Berklee College Music at that point was five years of musical experience, they said, and that could be defined by you listening to music a lot for five years. <laughs> so Berklee College Music in the 80s was a lot of the people that smoked a lot of pot, and you just never thought they would go to college anywhere. They ended up at Berkeley. It's also probably why they had an 85% freshman dropout rate. But it also, one of the other results of that particular demographic at that school was we had lots of fire alarms that were false alarms. These guys, they just loved to, and I say guys because it really was like 90% guys and about 8% girls when I was there. Um, but these guys, they would smoke pot all night. And then they would decide it would be really funny to pull the fire alarm about two or three in the morning. And so we just had lots of fire alarms. And basically in those days, most everything was contained in this one building that had been an old hotel until there had been a fire in this hotel in the 40s and a bunch of people had died. And after they kind of gutted it and fixed it back up, Berkeley bought it and it was the dorm. And it still had just this one single file spiral staircase that went through the middle of the building to evacuate everybody in case of a fire. But we had all these false fire alarms. And so I remember one night, once again, hearing the fire alarm. It was probably about two in the morning, except this time somebody banged on the door as well. And people at Berkeley were notorious for not getting out of their beds because the fire alarms were always wrong. But this time, somebody knocked on the door. I remember I got up, and I remember this time when I walked out into the hall, there was a haze, and you could smell smoke. And then you're just like, oh, okay, something's going on different. And we walk, I remember walking past, the practice rooms were about as far away as that wall from the door you went to. You passed through the hallway, the practice room door down there, and then you went down. I was on the fourth floor, which technically was only up one floor, and then above me were floors five, six, seven, eight, all the rest of the places where people lived, all the people that had to go down that single file um, spiral staircase. We get outside, turn back, and look up at the building, and there are flames pouring out the side of the building. So it turned out fire had started on my floor in the practice rooms. The thing was, the soundproof door was also a fireproof door. And so the, the fire went up to the fifth floor, the sixth floor, the seventh floor, the eighth floor, before the smoke alarm finally went off on the eighth floor. So by the time we got outside and looked back at our building, it was engulfed five floors. This is a big deal. It actually made the papers the next day in Baltimore, <laughs> where, where I grew up. My parents saw it. Those were the, before the days of cell phones, you know, trying to, trying to call, what? You know. Well, I remember after being out there for a few hours, going back inside, we all got to go inside. This was, you know, winter in Boston. It was, a, you know, time, actually there was a little, like a Circle K across the street, which got completely looted 
completely emptied the shells from all the Berkeley students that you know, had to be out. So from then on, whenever there was a smoke alarm or a fire alarm, they would lock the doors before the students could get out of the dorm. Well, anyway, we go back into the cafeteria, and the, the resident director named Jim, a guy named Jim, explains to us what happened and tells us about how the fire had went all up in the, the practice rooms. And he says, you know, the fire chief told him that it was very fortunate that no one had been killed. Because when Jim smelled the smoke, he was on my floor, he walked down to the practice room dorms, he was about to open that door, and he saw just a little bit of fire flick out from underneath of it. Fire chief told him if he had opened that door, he would have created a backdraft. Because that oxygen-starved fire would have just exploded, trapping all the people on the floors above. Now, there's sort of an eerie feeling like, oh, when you realize you came that close to something. But here's the thing. The truth I knew was that I was in my bed and I was fine. The truth I was told was that there was a dire emergency. And I wonder how often the things that we're told don't jive with what we feel to be true, but it doesn't matter. Because sometimes the things that you're told are more true than even the things that you feel. This is a passage, I think, that depends upon that very idea. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start reading from the first verse. Paul, the apostle, writes this. This is God's word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray together, and then we will dig into this great section of God's Word. Lord, we confess that as we read this, we read words like we're dead in our sins and transgressions, and it, we just have to say, Lord, we don't feel like that. Oh, there are times where we struggle, but we don't feel like we're dead. I feel like this is a little extreme. But I pray, Lord, that you would send your Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Help us as we explore this passage tonight. 
and help us to tremble at your word, to receive it, to hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to talk about tonight is the good news starts with the bad news. And we're going to look, what is grace, really? It's a popular word. People like to talk about it. People like to, to ask for it, to expect it. But what does it really mean, according to the Bible? And then what difference does it make? For us, personally, the way we live, and even for the community that God is building. Because while that doesn't yet come up quite in this passage, Paul is laying the groundwork for what we're going to talk about next week. He's going to talk about this new community that God is building of people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. And there is an important link between what he says here and that vision and that hope. So first, to understand the gospel, which literally means in the Greek, good news, we have to understand the bad news. We do. The bad news is the truth. And here's the thing. God is gracious to intervene by telling us the truth. N.T. Wright, famous Christian writer, theologian, one-time bishop, says that we live in a world where human beings, left to themselves, not only choose the wrong direction, but remain cheerfully confident that it is, in fact, the right one. Have you ever seen a car going the wrong way down the highway? I mean, on the interstate? Anybody? I have. It's kind of frightening, but at first, it's surreal. And you're looking at it, and you can't believe it's happening. I had this experience a few years ago on I-40, um, about an hour east of Nashville, a place called Cookville, Tennessee. I was coming back, and the place where you get on the highway there is a little confusing, and evidently this older person got on. I saw them get on. I saw them get, come up the exit ramp, and all of a sudden they're like, going by. And at first, it's, there was not much traffic. It was the middle of the afternoon. And at first, you're just like, uh, I can't believe this is happening. And then you start beeping. You start flashing. But here's the thing. When you're going the wrong way on the interstate, you, you ignore those first couple beeps and flashing lights because it's just not even in your realm of your thinking that you could actually be going the wrong way. It takes a while before it finally starts to dawn on you, oh, maybe I'm the one Who's going? I mean, I'm on a nice highway. It's a beautiful day. I'm just kind of cruising along. Oh, the exits, the signs are, I'm seeing the backs of the signs. It shouldn't be that way. And then you realize you've got a problem. That's basically what Paul is saying here. We're going along. Everything seems fine. But in actuality, we're going the wrong way. We're enslaved and we're dead. We're in imminent danger and it just doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it. Nonetheless... It's true. Not only are we going the way our desires tell us is the way to go, the devil and the world are encouraging us. And so we're just heading down this road. God here says we are enslaved to our desires and dead to God, even though we may not feel like it. Now, how can you say you're dead? You don't look dead. You don't seem dead. I don't seem dead. How can he say that somebody apart from Christ is dead? Well, think of it this way. One of the things that Jesus said is that life is found 
by abiding in God. And do you understand, when you're not abiding in God, when you're not in a right relationship with Him, He's dead to you and you're dead to Him. And you're on the way to physical death. The soul is separated from the body. But you're as good as dead already because you're not living the way you were made to live. It seems, though, like you're getting to live the way you want to live so much of the time. And the Bible actually says that you always get what you want. The question is, does your heart want the right things? Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, theologian and American preacher, said, you know, if somebody holds a gun to your head and says, give me your money or your life, and you give them your money, it's because that's what you want at the time. You would rather give them the money, life. Now, you may say, well, it doesn't really feel like freedom. The Bible nowhere actually says that you have complete autonomy, what some people call free will, in the sense that you can just do whatever you want contrary to your heart. You always choose according to your heart. From the Bible's perspective, the heart is not the seat of your emotions. In the Bible, that's your bowels. You feel things in your bowels in the Bible's way of speaking. This is why we don't have biblical Valentine's Day cards. But you, you act out of your will. You act out of your heart. And the Bible says your heart is enslaved to your desires. You're going the wrong way, but it feels like you're getting your own way. But it's the wrong way. And you're powerless to do anything about it. And here's the thing. Jesus comes, and he doesn't just come to tell us about grace. He doesn't even come just to die on the cross for us. He also comes to show us what true humanity looks like. And here's the interesting thing that he shows us. Genuine human life is found not in getting your own way, but in living self-sacrificially. And what Paul's saying here is you're going your own way. You're going your own way. You're enslaved. Now, this truth that God speaks here runs counter to the spirit of our age. Absolutely. It runs counter to our hearts. We live in a day and age when it's very popular for people to argue that your deepest feelings, your deepest desires are who you truly are. The Bible says... No, it's not true. It's not true. Now, I'm not just talking about the debates about sexual identity. No, to even have that debate in a helpful way, Christian way, bring the Christian vantage point to even some of those debates, you have to understand this even more basic point, that your desires have been corrupted. And you can't go from your desires to understanding who you were truly meant to be. You have to understand who God made for you to be before sin and brokenness entered the world. And the way to see that is to look at Christ, the second Adam, the one who truly modeled what genuine, beautiful human life looked like. And he says it's not living for your own desires. So Paul says, the problem is, we're living to gratify our own desires. It feels right to us, but in actuality, we're dead. 
And he needs to speak this truth to intervene to help us to understand that many of us, maybe all of us, have deep desires that need to be held in check because they're opposite of the way God calls us to live. Our desires are for ourselves to do what we want, to be free to do whatever we want without any interference. The problem is it's not what we were made for. It's not what a beautiful human life looks like. And it's not just that our desires are leading us the wrong way. There are spiritual forces at work too. You might think, oh, I don't know about that stuff. Paul talks here about the spirit, the prince of the air, Satan, the evil one. And here's the thing I would like you to consider. Christianity says this, you can't fully explain the world as it is merely from what's in the world that you can taste, touch, smell, or see. The Bible contends that you cannot explain all the evil and brokenness in the world merely as human produced or caused. There are spiritual forces at work as well. And the consequence then is that we're by nature children of wrath. Strong statement too, isn't it? Because it doesn't feel like we're children of wrath. And some people would say, well, I got a big problem with this God of wrath. The funny thing is people so often will say, you know, I I like the God of the New Testament because the God of the New Testament is loving and kind, the Father God. The God in the Old Testament, that's the God of wrath. I don't like the God of wrath. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, we're by nature children of wrath. Or you could maybe go over to Hebrews where it says that our God is a consuming fire. Don't ever try to make pit the Old Testament and the New Testament against each other in that way. God is God. And here's the thing. If God loves deeply, he has to be a God of wrath. Maybe when you have kids, you'll understand how you can love and be angry at the stupid, destructive things your kids do at the same time. Don't ever think that wrath and love can't coexist and that you can't have a God of love if God is a God of wrath. God is not happy about the way sin and brokenness has ruined everything and produced in us what Martin Luther so famously called that inward curvature of the soul. The inward curvature of the soul. Now, for me, I think it's better to be told the truth than to be flattered. And I think there are a lot of ways that people think of Christianity that actually are not the truth, but they flatter us. Let me explain what I mean. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5 says that whoever flatters his neighbor sets a snare or a trap for him. That flattery is always intended to trap you, and it does trap you because it lies to you and makes you feel like you can do anything. And one of, the, one of the greatest bondages that you'll ever experience is when people feel you can do something that you can't possibly do. And there are a lot of people that say, basically, human beings have this innate ability to believe in God, to ask God into lives whenever they want. It's just something that they have. All they need to do is exercise it. And so all we need to do is manipulate them or cajole them or scare them. And here's the thing. 
don't be flattered. You don't have the ability. Now, you might say, well, that sounds kind of discouraging. No, it's actually good news. You know why? You know why? It's good news because you don't have to labor under this feeling like if I just tried a little harder, I could be reconciled to God. Or if I just, you know, prayed a little more or sacrificed a little more, maybe God would love me. If you think that, you are in bondage because you will never feel like you can do enough. Better Better to be told that you don't have this ability. You need grace. So what is grace? Well, according to Paul here, grace is God making dead people alive. I don't know what you think of grace. Grace is not God throwing you a life preserver. Sometimes we use that illustration, you know, you know, you, you, those apart from Christ are sort of out in the middle of the ocean. They're drowning. They're going down for the third time. And in the gospel, Christ throws your life preserver, but you still got to take it. Maybe you've heard those kinds of stories. That's a lie. It's not true. The truth is, you're not drowning. You're dead. On the bottom of the ocean floor. And Christ doesn't throw you a life preserver. What good would it do? What good does it do to throw a life preserver to dead people? No, what Christ does is he strips off his robes of glory. He dives in. He picks you up. He drags you to the beach, and he breathes new life into you. That's what Paul says grace is. It's dead people being made alive. It's not sick people or people who just need another chance being thrown a life preserver so that they can save themselves by taking it. Paul doesn't want you to think of grace as something that you do or you earn in any way. As a matter of fact, he goes out of his way to say, lest anyone should boast. Paul says, for you to really understand grace, it would lead you to say there's no room to boast. The gospel begins with the bad news, but it's the good news because it's true. Grace is absolutely necessary because we're dead. And grace is what God gives us. God, God making dead people alive again. I love verse 4. But because of his great love for us. There's a lot of great buts in the Bible. This is one of the most spectacular. It's okay. Lighten up. It's a heavy, it's a heavy night. No, I mean, actually, there's a famous preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a, a great favorite of Tim Keller. So if you like Tim Keller, you probably like uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once removed. You just may not know that. But he preached an entire sermon one time just on that word, but. The whole gospel is contained in those three letters, in that one word. The gospel, the good news is, you don't get what you deserve. We were by nature children of wrath, but... God, because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Grace excludes boasting because even faith is a gift. You know, I love that quote by the gold Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon where he says, faith is like an exotic rare plant 
not native to the soil of the human heart. And if you find it growing in your heart, you know that someone must have planted it there. That's right. That's what Paul's saying here. Even faith is a gift from God. At the heart of the debate about salvation and who does what in salvation are two concepts. And the order of these two concepts is absolutely vital. Faith and regeneration. Regeneration is what it sounds. To be regenerated, to be remade, to be born again. And the question is, and this is what a lot of Christians debate, is does faith lead to regeneration? Does it cause regeneration? Does it come first? Or does regeneration result in faith and new life? Paul shows us where he's at on this debate. You have been made alive, regenerated by grace through faith, not because of faith. Nowhere in the New Testament does, the, the, does any New Testament writer say that we're saved because of our faith. It's always by grace through faith. Always. Now in English, by faith can either be because of or through, but in Greek it's two different words. And never does the Bible say you're saved because of your faith. Like it's the thing that you contribute to the deal. Grace is not a helping hand. It's a gift of God. Faith is the first cry of the newborn baby. Grace demonstrates God's kindness to us as well. Now, I think this is so important because one of the deepest problems that we have is our suspicion that God is not truly kind. I think it's deep in us. Our suspicion of God's kindness goes all the way back to the garden. It's the way that Satan was able to tempt Adam and Eve. Did God really say you couldn't eat? Why would he not let you eat of all these trees? Why would he hold out on you? Isn't he kind? Doesn't he care about you? I mean, look, and they looked, and they said, the tree looks good to the eye. And so they ate. But what was called into question was God's kindness. And they fell. And I would argue that God's kindness is always called into the question before you sin. And understand this. Here's what Paul's saying. God saves us in this way by grace to demonstrate God's kindness. And do you understand how beautiful it is that he does that? Because probably one of the deepest things that needs to be healed in your life and your heart is this suspicion that God is not really kind. And so he saves us in a way that demonstrates his kindness. While we were dead, he makes us alive so that he can demonstrate his incomparable riches of his kindness to the coming ages, forever and ever. We are quite literally trophies of God's grace. And that's why in verse 10 it says that we are his handiwork. And the word there has this artistic connotation. We are the thing that God wants to use to show off how kind he is. And it's not just for the angels. It's for us. Because we need to see the demonstration of his kindness. The very nature of salvation by grace alone and not by what we do teaches us and shows us that he is kind. Listen, God doesn't want you to live alienated from him. But if you know God... He doesn't want you to live 
being suspicious of his kindness. And so he demonstrates it in such a huge, powerful way. And then that brings us to the end here. It's only this big grace gospel that can give birth to new motivation and new community. Grace gives us a new motivation. Do you see here? Verse 9, salvation is not by works so that no one can boast, but we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, we're not saved just so that we can rest. Salvation is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's to change us, to live differently, to live the way God created us to live. This is why James, in his letter, calls the law of God the perfect law of freedom. The way God wants you to live is what you were made for. But the motivation has to change. Because it's one thing to try to live the Christian life to get God off your back. It's another thing to live the Christian life because you've tasted the goodness of the gospel that changes everything. Anybody ever seen that movie, Office Space? I love Office Space. If you haven't seen Office Space, you've got to watch this movie. Um, it's about sort of life in a cubicle and how dehumanizing that is, and it's a hilarious movie. There's one uh, scene where this guy, Peter, is uh, basically having to talk to his boss about the, the amount of work he actually does. And he kind of goes through his day, and he's rattling off all the different things, and he says, basically, I work about 15 minutes of real work every day. And the guy's like, what? And he goes, well, think about it this way, you know, Bob. Bob is his boss. He goes, Peter says, Bob, you know, basically, you know, I have eight bosses that I have to report to. And so, really, the only reason that I do any work at all is to not get fired and not to get hassled by eight different bosses. So, here's the thing. That only motivates me to work just enough to not be hassled and to not get fired. And I think a lot of Christians are just getting tired and worn out because they're trying to live the Christian life just enough so that they don't get hassled by their parents, their guilty conscience, their friends, their roommate, God. That's not what this big grace gospel is out to produce. This big grace gospel says, you were dead. You've been made alive. It's by grace you have been saved so that you could do good work, so that you could actually be set free to live the kind of life that God made you to live. And then he talks about new community. I was struck by this quote by a friend of mine, Randy Neighbors. Randy Neighbors um, planted a church in Chattanooga called New City Fellowship. Um, it's, a, it's just a remarkable church, particularly in the way they've been able to bring racial reconciliation and healing uh, in the city of Chattanooga. And they have actually another one, St. Louis, which is another great church. When Randy was uh, talking at a conference this weekend, and a friend of mine posted a quote of his on Facebook, and I read it, and I was like, ah, this is, this is what Paul is envisioning here in Ephesians. See, Paul is writing to people He's writing to people who are in the midst of this intense racial hatred. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. I don't know if you understand that. They hated each other. The Jewish rabbis used to have serious debates about whether it was appropriate if you came upon a Jewish woman who was in labor, should you help her? 
Would it be sin to help her? Because after all, you would be bringing another Gentile sinner into the world. And so a lot of the rabbis said, you shouldn't help her. Like that's how much they hated each other. The Jewish rabbis taught that every day you should pray this prayer. Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. And the Gentile was first. Okay? Into that world, Paul is saying, God, by his grace, is building a new community. And this is where we're going to look at next week. But you need to understand, this dream of a new community cannot ever even be imagined if this big grace gospel is not true. Let me show you how this works. Randy said this, We think it ought not to be an exception that the reality of a congregation would hold within its midst the judge, the prosecutor, the sheriff, the police officer, the ex-con, the ex-thief, the ex-gangbanger, and even those who are presently at risk of being swept into a life of drugs, gangs, or crime due to their family background and environment, as well as the victims of some of those individuals. Can you imagine a church that involves and includes all of those people? It's hard to imagine because we don't see it very much. But let me tell you, there is an absolutely important link between the gospel you believe and the community you hope for. Knowing that salvation is not a matter of you exercising some ability you have or using the privileges that you possess, knowing that salvation is not a matter of that is the only thing that can give birth to this possibility that there can be a church made up of people who have privilege and don't have privilege. If salvation is a matter of the smart people, the courageous people, the brave people, the good workers deciding to better their life by accepting Jesus into it, well, then you can never have this kind of vision where the people who are helpless and hopeless will also find a place in your church. So if you fight against this big grace gospel, do you understand that you're also undermining the only possible way that you can have a church that's made up of people who can fix their lives and those who can't. In other words, understanding that conversion comes from the power of God rather than some ability you have is the only thing that can give you hope that the church could ever be a place made up of all kinds of people. You can't long for a community made up of all sorts of people while you resist a gospel that has the power to make this kind of community possible. If salvation is by grace, no one can despair. And no one needs to earn it. And no one can earn it. And all i got to say is, do you still think theology doesn't matter? Because the gospel you believe has everything to do with the kind of community you can hope for and work toward. Let's pray together.